Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Australian engineer, climate change expert, and Club of Rome member Ian Dunlop. As this episode was recorded at the Springtime Conference 2018, Dr. Bosazan's co-interviewer today will be Dr. Stefan Brunhuber, an expert in integral mental health as well as sustainability issues. Enjoy the show. Well, thanks very much for the invitation to talk to you about these issues, which are about the most important ones I think we face uh, globally. Um, I spent most of my career in the fossil fuel industry initially in oil and gas exploration and uh, subsequently in the coal industry, um, both internationally and in Australia. But very early in my career I got involved in looking at the long-term future of energy and particularly uh, techniques such as scenario planning. And it became clear to me at that stage, um, this was roughly the time the, um, or slightly before the limits to growth work was being developed by the Club of Rome, um, that we were eventually going to have a problem with the continuing development of the fossil fuel industry as population increased and, uh, and consumption increased generally. That this eventually would be something the fossil fuel world had to look at seriously. Um, in those days, it was not seen as a, an immediate priority. It was one of those things that uh, sooner or later would happen. Um, but as the time's gone by, the science has got better, the uh, evidence has got clearer, and there comes a point when you actually have to do something. And we reached that point um, many years ago now, but of course that really hasn't been recognised uh, within the business and indeed in the financial world, I guess. So I got out of fossil fuels in the, um, the late, uh, essentially in the late 80s, the early 90s, and um, I've been involved ever since in trying to change direction and move away from fossil fuels. Um, so my role these days is very much as, a, um, I guess, as an activist in trying to effect that change to get people to better understand the reality we now face, which is much more serious than I think uh, we're being told officially by either governments or corporations and what have you. So, yes, you're talking about the climate change um, as being a, an existential risk. Can you yeah. tell us about why that is so? And what exactly is it that we do not get collectively, individually, at the politician level? Well, I think what's happened is that <coughs> since the um, late 80s, we put together globally these institutions like the <coughs> Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN uh, Framework on <coughs> Climate Change, the UNFCCC uh, Convention on Climate Change. Um, those groups have done a tremendous job in basically bringing uh, into the open <coughs> the sort of changes we are going to have to make. But unfortunately, they are subject to vast pressure from the established institutions politically, corporately, uh, if you have a world as, we, as we've got it, where essentially growth has continued more or less without halt since the end of World War II, um, 
when you get an issue developed like climate change, which has not um, is really has the potential to fundamentally reshape the entire economic system and the social systems under which we operate, then it's very hard for people to grasp that if they've always grown up with the idea that the status quo will continue and continue to improve. And um, so the institutions we set up are not really um, giving us an honest picture on the extent of the problem we now face with climate change and the level of change we're going to have to make to, to solve it. What I mean by existential is that the uh, implications of climate change, if we don't move to address it much more rapidly than we're currently doing, will fundamentally change the entire basis under which humanity uh, uh, operates or in fact even continues. Because if you get um, temperature increases, um, Typically, the, the political world has, has said, look, two degrees C is the limit we have to really respect. In reality, that was a purely political um, uh, decision based on some fairly crude scientific knowledge at the time, which said, look, that's the sort of thing that we probably can manage to stay below, and therefore we should sort of take that as the target. Now, the reality is that two degrees C, as we see it today, with the information we now have, um, is in fact an extremely dangerous temperature increase. Anything much above that is leading us into territory which is going to be uh, completely untenable. It's going to be a world which is um, chaotic uh, socially, economically. Uh, if you get up to about 3 degrees C, if you go up 4 degrees C, the best estimates we've got is completely incompatible with any organised global society. Now, I mean, that that understanding is just not there, um, or just certainly not accepted officially within, um, for example, finance groups around the world, with corporate groups, and politically, because it's too hard. I mean, people don't really want to buy into that discussion because the implications are so extensive. But that is the reality we now face, and unfortunately we've not been prepared to acknowledge it. And uh, time has gone by. <clears throat> We're now at the point where we really have to move extremely quickly to uh, avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. And what it means is that the level of um, scale of change that has to take place around the world is, is unlike anything we've ever had to contemplate before. You're talking about a complete redesign of the way humanity actually operates and lives. And I mean, that's a discussion that really hasn't started. So somehow we have to change the understanding and then start to talk honestly about the size of the problem and then bring in the solutions that are there, which we do have. We know we're seeing a tremendous amount of technological progress, um, a lot of uh, social change occurring. Um, wealth, enormous wealth has been created around the world, but it has to be refocused. And unless we take a far more fundamental uh, view of that, then it's not going to work. We will get ourselves into the position where um, probably global population reduces substantially. So it's very important that the leaders in society now start to rethink, reframe the entire way we approach climate change and the full implications of that and the full extent of solutions that we have to now address. So our audience are investors, yep. uh, people who have already understood that something needs to be done and are really looking 
to find ways to address the problem. What recommendations would you make to those of us who get it? What would be the, mo the single most important thing to do? In what area to invest in, in you know, to address climate change? Well, the first issue is to accept the level of change, the level of problem, the, the, the real problem we've now got, and the level of change that's going to imply. Um, the investment community is absolutely critical in this because unless we redirect the flow of money into the right areas and in the right ways, um, obviously there's questions of the um, phase out of fossil fuels. That has to be one of the major issues and <clears throat> that has to be done quickly because that's the major source of emissions we're currently dealing with. So um, the, in terms of the most important issue I think investment community has to recognise is to uh, completely reconsider the level of risk we've now got and the fact that existential risk, the fact that humanity may not continue requires completely different risk management techniques from the ones that we've used historically. And that's going to require a far more rapid um, uh, change in the direction of funds, much more rapid divestment from industries like the fossil fuels uh, than is currently being contemplated. And the preparedness to really start to take risks on the newer technologies and look at the scale we're going to require, which is actually massive. I mean, this is the biggest investment opportunity right. that the world has probably ever seen. And yes, it's going to be risky. Um, we're doing it in conditions in many Life ways. Life is which risky. Are, absolutely. <laughs> um, but we're doing it in conditions that are far from ideal because we're having to now move to do this much more quickly than um, most investors would be comfortable with if you look back historically. But you need that picture of where we've got to go to. Um, there's plenty of <coughs> information around that. There are, you know, the, the solutions are pretty clear. But we need a preparedness of the investment community to stand up and be counted, move away from their historic ways of doing things and really take risks in a, a, a constructive but um, a very aggressive sense to move this change at the fastest possible rate. So can we go a little bit into some <coughs> details, you know, you know, like as an investor on a day to day basis, you just have to look at, you know, you get de deals across the yep. table, you yep. search for deals, but most of the time, you know, people know that you're investing and you get. So what are this, the most important areas that we should be looking uh, at? You know, what like what are the biggest areas of CO2 emission? Um, you know, in our case, we invest in, for instance, you know, we, we reduce 30 to 50 percent in CO2 emissions by, you know, investing in data centers that yep. are growing yep. and um, people need them. And technology, as you said, is helping in a way. And uh, so that's one way of doing it. What else would you recommend as a generalization? What areas we should be looking at? Because well, you talked about, <coughs> talk about the, um, the existential risk that humanity may not exist. Yep. So yep. in what order are we going to, <laughs> to lose the well, battle? That, let's hope that we're not. <laughs> well, let's hope we're not. That's the, that's the outcome of the existential risk, actually, <laughs> if we don't solve it. Uh, look, there's the obvious issues of the need to move away from fossil fuels and alternative energy supply. Of course, renewables is a critical one, um, you know, whether it's solar, wind, tide, uh, all of the range of options. And a lot of that's moving in a very positive sense. You've got um, 
major questions around, for example, agriculture, Mm-hmm. And the fact we have to redesign agriculture to, um, again, reduce emission levels and change um, farming practices. So artificial of, meat, for instance, is that something? What we eat. Yeah. Uh, artificial meat, would, you know, that yeah, doesn't yeah, require uh, those that, cows well, to Well, exactly. Em- that's that's <laughs> one, of the, one of the options. The other very big one uh, linked to that is soil sequestration of carbon. Mm-hmm. So in other words, changing the farming practices that we're, we're about um, globally. Um, to find ways and means of absorbing carbon from the atmosphere because it's not just a question of cutting emissions. Yes. We are going to have to draw down carbon from the atmosphere with various techniques and this is probably one of the most uh, practical ways of doing it if it's done at scale. But at the moment, it's nowhere near the sort of scale we need. And this is, I mean, scale is critical right the way through this and it's going to become uh, a much, much bigger and more extensive um, process than anybody's contemplated. Who, we, who is doing that right now? Where, what direction shall we look? When well, we, you, you'll find groups, um, uh, there's, well, there's, there's quite a, an extensive discussion going on about ways and means of changing this amongst people who've been trying to do it for years and have been very successful in many ways in a micro sense. Individual farmers, for example, in Australia have been trying to do this and Uh, very successfully, um, as a lot of techniques are actually going back to what indigenous people used to do in countries, um, you know, decades ago, and redeveloping those techniques. If you look at China, there's a, a, a lot of work going on in, in this space, and the same in, in many parts of Asia. So the techniques are out there, but what hasn't happened is that the, the scale of this has not yet be, be really been picked up on, because people haven't seen the need for it. You know, they've assumed that somehow the conventional farming techniques, I mean, the, uh, uh, the industrial sort of mechanisms we've been using are the way to go, and it's not. So that's another, you know, key area. Um, the questions of efficiency, obviously, and the way we use energy, the way we conserve it, um, the whole uh, gamut of activities from sort of urban redesign, the way we individually live in terms of, you know, domestic housing, this sort of thing. Um, um, in both in terms of materials and in terms of the actual design techniques. Um, the whole arena of uh, material availability and use and replacement um, substitution concepts. All of this stuff, I mean, it, it's a, the entire system is going to have to be rethought in ways that go far beyond the boundaries, I think, of anything that's um, in place at the present time. But the interesting thing is, I mean, the, the, the newer technologies that are coming through are providing options to do that in ways we never thought about. So, I mean, you can talk about blockchain and things like that at one level. Um, but the combination of different sorts of technologies in uh, different ways, I mean, thinking out of the box on, on this stuff, um, is really very exciting. So I think whilst on the one hand you've got an existential problem, and it's serious and it's not going to go away, On the other hand, you have tremendous um, investment opportunities to actually address it if you're prepared to broaden the thinking and start sort of taking a, a, a really holistic approach to the whole thing. Yeah, so you are also, in your presentation, you were mentioning about the role of community yeah. uh, within this yeah. and the bottom-up approach, which is basically what we're doing because the governments are not doing what in our uh, yeah. Yeah. opinion should be doing. So what we're doing 
money owners, not money managers, because they have to uh, subscribe to regulations. Yeah. We're uniting and trying to aggregate the necessary capital to have an impact with our. Yeah. So that's our community approach, uh, quote unquote, um, to this. Can you share with us a little bit of, uh, you know, the movement at the at the bottom of the, uh, you know, in society in terms of community and how we can involve them and work with them to, yeah, to reach I, I the tipping point? Because this is basically what we need. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you look at the, the um, official institutions, I don't think we're going to see leadership on these issues from politicians because it's too hard. I mean, we have uh, an economic system that has become incredibly short-term focused in the Western economies for all sorts of reasons, which we can talk about. <laughs> um, we have a corporate system that, op uh, that is similarly constrained um, in short-termism, and a lot of it's to do with the way people are paid. I mean, you know, we have this pay-for-performance concept which effectively locks in guarantees that you'll have short-term performance. Uh, that's flowed into the political system. You have a tremendous weight of um, influence going from the corporate sector um, addressing politicians, uh, trying to get them to maintain the status quo. Um, the corporate world itself has been, on the one hand, uh, you hear a lot of rhetoric about the fact that we have to address climate change and, uh, and move much more quickly, but in practice it's not happening because of these um, short-term constraints in the economic system. So in the end you say, well, what happens if the politicians are not going to address it, if the business leaders who are supposedly the experts in addressing risk and the investment community, I have to say, are not going to address it, then who does? And it comes back to the community. I mean, the fact is that um, around the world now, at the local level, whether you're a farmer or you live in a city or whatever, people are seeing the impact of, of climate change and it's serious. Um, so there comes a point where communities will take things into their own hands to take action and force the pace of change. And that, I think, is what is now happening. We're seeing um, local communities, for example, um, councils in various um, cities in Australia starting to form emergency groups and structure their own emergency strategy formally for that particular council area. We're finding uh, increasing amounts of civil disobedience where people say, look, we're not prepared to accept the pollution that comes, for example, from uh, movement of coal you know, through our communities, from continuing expansion. And we also realise that the use of those materials, coal for example particularly, um, is causing us major problems in a global context, I mean, which impacts back on us. And therefore, uh, in the absence of any other action, we're going to do things ourselves. So you're now seeing that um, civil disobedience develop. In Australia, people are locking themselves on the conveyors of, um, you know, uh, transport terminals in ports and so on to stop the export of coal continuing. Now that's going to get, um, I think, an increasing focus uh, in the absence of leadership from elsewhere. So that, I, it, in, in my way of thinking, is extremely positive. I mean, this, in the end, has to break the status quo. And I think eventually what we'll see is that uh, politicians and uh, corporate leaders will come in basically behind that. They'll then pick up the issue and start leading, perhaps, if we're lucky, 
But don't hold your breath expecting that to happen initially. We've got to force the pace of change. So there's got to be a new narrative about what we have to do, why we're doing it. And I think the why is now becoming pretty clear. Um, what we need now is a path forward in terms of, well, how do you put all these solutions together to address the problem at the scale we actually need? And the investment community need to come in behind that. I mean, we've seen tremendous progress, for example, in, uh, say, the, the divestment uh, initiative. Divest investment. Yeah. yeah, divest investment. Which is... Oh, on a good track. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're here on the sidelines of uh, the Springtide 2018. We just listened to the presentation by uh, Joachim Schellenhuber. And so and I totally agree with you uh, on the, the necessity for a narrative. Um, and the yep. narrative has to be positive because fear only goes that far. Yeah, but you've got to start from an honest uh, articulation honest. of the problem. Honesty, of course. And then you have to have the positive story about, well, why do we do it? Where are we going to go? And I think that's starting to... Uh, that's starting to develop. You're starting to um, see that coming through. The question we have now is is to make it realistic. So coming back to the divestment issue, um, you can say, well, look, we have to divest from fossil fuels. And that's been critically important in getting acceptance that this is now a serious issue in the investment community. But it's not a solution. I mean, you, you can't, if you divest from a fossil fuel asset and somebody else picks it up who probably have less uh, lower environmental credentials than you do or don't really accept the climate issue. For example, in Australia we've had um, companies selling out of coal assets and then organisations from uh, China or India or other places then um, buying those assets and, and trying to develop them. You don't solve anything because you end up with a worse environmental problem than you started with. Practically so what you what you have to do is yeah. now accept that it's got to move from divestment to sterilization. You keep it in the ground. Now that's difficult because people then have to write off assets. And that has implications on the stock market. It has implications for executives' bonus, bonuses. And, and so it goes on. Well, so it's very hard. Well, maybe they their children. Well, you have, to, you have to ask that question. I mean, why, why, you know, why are you doing this? Why aren't you prepared to actually make the changes we need? And um, it, becomes, uh, it becomes a much wider debate than we've seen so far. But, but that is the point we've got to reach, where people really have to start fundamentally rethink um, short-termism and start to focus on the fact that the climate issues are now going to impact their operations in a hard-nosed economic sense. And it, you can't put that off. I mean, this is not going to go away. And you've got to move out of that short-term mode and start to say, well, okay, uh, perhaps we have to change our remuneration systems to better incentivize the long-term thinking. Um, in some ways, you've got to go back to a more ethical and moral dimension and say, well, why are we worrying about, you know, incentives at all? I mean, this is a, a problem that is much, much bigger than um, anything that has come out of the traditional economic system. We now have to completely uh, start off in a different ethical framework and say, well, okay, we go back to the old days where we just had a salary and we got on and did our job. And the whole idea was to um, see the corporation as a sort of genuine uh, part of society with a responsibility for both short, medium and long term. Now, I mean, my perspective on all of this is that the, um, the way we pay people has actually fundamentally changed corporate ethics in the last uh, 20 years from something which was relatively long term and responsible 
to one that is totally short-term and often completely irresponsible in, the, in the, the world we now face. So you have those sort of philosophical discussions that need to go on, and uh, it's got to be framed, though, within the sort of real understanding of the size of the problem we face and the speed with which we've got to react. Ian, thank you very much for your, this, for your insights. We would be very interested in... Can you share your ideas about what are the most important components that lock us into a short-term perspective? Yeah, to me, the, the overriding problem is this whole concept of pay for performance, which came into the US in the mid-80s um, as a means of increasing efficiency. In other words, you, you used to have, uh, as, a, as a senior executive, you used to just get a salary, you had a job you had to do, and you got on and did your job. Um, people were generally happy. As the, uh, I suppose you call it the neoliberal dominance of efficiency, cost cutting and so on came in, people said, well, how do we improve this? And the idea that if you gave people um, a very significant part of their remuneration in the form of a bonus for performance against specific criteria, that would improve the way everybody operated and would produce all sorts of innovations and, and, and improvement uh, to the benefit of the company overall. Became the dominant theme. A dollar what, today is better than a dollar tomorrow. Yeah. Yes, but the, but the effect of that was that um, initially in the banking industry, I mean that, that started and the idea then escalated to the point that if you gave people a very lot of money, a very large amount of money, for performing um, against a target, and you cut back the salary, then this would have been even better. And so the whole thing escalated to the point where initially, I think in the 80s, um, I mean, the ratio of the average uh, chief executive payment to um, the average worker was, you know, maybe 10, um, 12 to one. We reached the ludicrous point in the US um, in the early 90s and mid 90s where you were talking of figures of 400 to 1 or 500 to 1 and you end up with these mega um, salaries. I mean, where you have a sort of entrepreneur who, who by his own single effort produces some remarkable outcome, um, then it's hard to argue that you know, he shouldn't get paid that way. But that's not the way most executives operate. I mean, they, they're basically they're in a system and they rely on a lot of other people to produce all these things anyway. And the whole idea of the fact that you can just get, you know, that um, performance, the individual has such an uh, amazing role to play in this, I think is complete nonsense. But the problem is that it escalated uh, in terms of quantum. It also spread right through the Anglo-Saxon system. So from the US, it went to Canada, it went to the UK, it went to Australia. And it's now absolutely locked into the system. And it's not just business, it's now in politics, um, where you find the um, you know, political system is rewarded in this way in various forms. It's in the bureaucracy. So um, you know, bureaucrats operate under the same sort of bonus type stuff, not the same quantum, but the same principle. It's in sport. Um, so sport isn't really sport any longer. It's basically, you know, sort of a, <laughs> sort of um, business type activity and that is I think the the biggest issue of all I mean we have to get rid of that because it, it basically makes people totally dominated by the, the immediate short term 
and it's in our lives. You know, we want the instant yeah. everything yes, now. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, you've got you've got that. You've then got, I mean, a whole lot of spin-offs from that in the sense that um, you have this extremely competitive position developing between companies, which, I mean, competition is, is fine. But it can get completely out of hand if the reward structure is such that it, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the be-all and end-all. I mean, in Australia now, we, if, you go, if you go back and look at the global financial crisis in 2008, um, there were uh, major issues related to this remuneration being caused that. I mean, the, the pressure for suboptimal, you know, sub, subprime mortgages and so on to increase sales was a large part in producing that problem. Now, in 2008, the problem wasn't really addressed in trying to solve it. I mean, what we ended up with is the banks were bailed out. There was no structural change in the banking system. And if you go back now and look um, today, we've just had a banking royal commission in Australia, which is going on right now. And it's unearthing all sorts of absolutely, totally unethical um, uh, practices that the banks have been, you know, um, allowed to, to become institutionalized in the system. And it comes from the fact that this remuneration structure is, is uh, the driver of the entire process, right? And that, that stuff's been allowed to go on. I mean, you know, you get chairman of companies being being questioned in Royal Commission, saying, well, why did you allow this to happen? Oh, well, that's just the way it is. You know? So you really have to um, front up to the fact that we've got to make fundamental change to the system to get on top of it and uh, restructure it into a longer-term thinking. Brilliant. So where can people go and, and uh, get more information on your work so that they can get a better idea on the size of the problem? Well, we, we, um, we have a small group in Australia uh, which works for an organization called the Breakthrough Institute. Mm -hmm. So if you just go on the web to breakthrough.com, C-O-M dot A-U, um, that is the website that has a lot of the uh, recent reports we've done on it. Um, including um, a recent one called What Lies Beneath, which looks at the real scientific problem as opposed to what we're being told officially and why there's a difference between the two, why the problem has been badly underestimated in the official communications. So you can find it on those websites. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. It's been a great pleasure. Thank Not at you. all. Much appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information on Ian Dunlop, visit iandunlop.net. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.